So, uh, so last week, um, uh, me and Micah and some other people uh, got a chance to go to the Blessed South. Anybody else? So, thank you. Amen. We had a <laughs> Cheyenne came with us. She is now an honorary Southern debutante. So, uh, it was it was a wonderful. It was an eye opening experience for her. Amen. So, uh, amen. Amen. So we went to, we went to, Micah's sister got married, so it was super cool, so we went down there for that. Um, but uh, afterwards, we, I went to my grandparents' house, and my grandparents live about an hour north of Cleveland in a town called Knoxville. Not Knoxville, Knoxville, okay? And if you are a, any sort of uh, SEC team, you know, supporter, you know, Knoxville is the big place of the, of the Tennessee Volunteers, so that's where they live. I'm not holding that against you if that's what you cheer for, but that's where they live. And so um, I went there just to go hang out. I hadn't been there in years. They've lived there for, like, seriously, for, like, 100 years. They're not really that old. But, uh, but so we went there, and I, uh, I don't know, like, why or even how this got started. We're like, hey, let's go look in the attic for awesome, cool things. Because that's what you do at your grandparents' house. You look through their attic for awesome, cool things. And so while we were going through all this stuff, um, one of the things you found was this super cool Instagram camera. Okay? For those of you guys who don't know, okay, this, is, this was Instagram like 40 years ago. Okay? So what you do is you put the film in here. Okay? And it's like your phone, except you can't see the picture until like 10 seconds later. So... Um, but but to them like they were we were talking uh, and and they had like all this cool stuff they had like old magazine clippings and like like this like the, the Life magazine article that came out like after JFK was assassinated like all this super cool like stuff they had up there and to them it was just junk like she's just like I'm just gonna throw this out anyways and I was like oh well no I, I want I'll take this this looks super cool and if it just needs battery and film so you know clearly this is a, a useful thing but uh, I. But to them, like, they didn't understand. They were just like, oh, this stuff is, is just useless to me anymore. I, I don't really need it. And, you know, kind of the thing that we see, the, the culture, you know, these things kind of recycle themselves. That, like, now we have apps on our phones that take pictures like this because it looks cool to make things look old and outdated. Like, that's, that's the cool thing to do right now. And so, you know, all that stuff just kind of resurfaces and comes back to us. And so, um, you know, I, I was, we were, we, as we were getting ready to talk for uh, this, this week, I was thinking about... This whole summer, as we're talking through this, this person called Jesus, you know, in, in many circles, we kind of put Jesus in the file cabinet of, you know, old and outdated. That, you know, this book was written, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. It's not relevant. It's not useful. It can apply to your life right now. And nothing can be further from the truth that just like things like this kind of come back around and have value that we can see that God's word transcends time. It doesn't really fit into time, but is able to communicate to you and to myself principles of truth that we can apply to our lives that is very, very applicable today. That things in your, that you and I are dealing with today that we can put through the, the, the lens of scripture and find and see that, yes, this stuff, this things in here really do have weight and have bearing in our lives. This is not a book written 2000 years ago and it's old and outdated and it's not useful to you anymore. This is a book with current things, current themes that are going on that is very, very applicable to your life right now. In this summer, we're going through, um, kind of a, a series that, that we did, um, a while ago based upon parables. And we did this a couple years back as well. 
but these parables are, are, are small stories that have very, very significant meanings or have large impacts in our lives. And so we want to look at some of the, the, the pieces of scripture that communicate that to us. And so tonight I want you guys to look at John six thirty through 40. John chapter 6, verse 30 through 40. And uh, the interesting thing about this is it's not actually going to be a parable, so to speak. This is more of a metaphor that Jesus is going to be talking about here. And when I just realized I put my bookmark on Mark 30, so I have to get to it too. So this is what it says. Uh, In John chapter 6, verse 30, it says this. Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that that you believe in him. I'm sorry, this is the verse before that. This is the work of God that you believe in him who Jesus has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers uh, ate the manna in in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and who gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, I said to you that uh, you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's a, that's, a, that's a lot of scripture that for us to process. So I want us to break that down for a second. But to know some context of what's going on here right now, okay? The last several chapters of John, Jesus has been doing some really crazy stuff, okay? Jesus has been doing some things like, like healing uh, an official son. He just, uh, he, he just uh, broke bread, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, that he just fed 5,000 people with some loaves of bread and some fish. Okay? He just did that miracle. Literally, he fed 5,000 people with just a handful of loaves and fish. And right before this chapter, Jesus walks on water. Or this, this, this portion, he walks on the water. And the first question these people ask him is this. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? So, so these people, okay, they've been around for the whole feeding of the 5,000. They've seen, they've heard Jesus do some really crazy stuff. And the first thing they're saying to Jesus is, so what, what, what can you do? Like, what, do you, what, what can you show us? Like, what's your credentials? What can you do for us? And he's like, Really? Like he's like, I just, I just fed 5,000 of you guys with like a handful of fishes and loaves, like little anchovies, sardines that Scott had up here. It was disgusting. Like he's like, I fed those to you guys and you're still asking me the question, what do you do? What, God, what do you do for me? 
And, and sometimes, and, and this is not like one of our main points, but sometimes I feel like, man, we see so much of the activity of God that we just grow numb to it, that sometimes we, we've been to so many of these events or things like that, or we are so open to, to God moving in our lives that when the, when the time comes for us to like really make a decision to follow Jesus, we're like, okay, God, just one more thing. Just, just, just prove to me yourself one more time. And, and, and God's like, really? Like I've done this like a million times, and yet you still don't quite understand what I'm trying to tell you, and that's and, and, and what they've done here is is, is they've they've equated Jesus to Moses because at this point they don't really understand this whole Jesus is God, God is Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God, all this kind of stuff. They don't really understand that concept yet, and so when they say this, they they're kind of equating him to like a person, like a significant prophet or, or, or figure in the past, or saying, "Well, if you're so awesome, why don't you you know give us bread from heaven like Moses did?" Because these people are hungry, because they just had five thousand, you know. Is eight. So, so he, he says to them, because he says, Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And this manna that, that he's talking about is, is, is basically, it's, it's kind of like a bread. We're trying to figure out what it really is, but it's like, it's, whatever it was, it was sustenance, it was food, it was life that was given to these Israelites when they were in the desert. So, you know, when, uh, you know, the whole story of, of, you know, Moses and, and the Israelites, they leave Egypt, you know, and the, remember that movie, the Prince of Egypt and the waves come and it kills all the people. Remember that? Okay. So now we're on the same page. So they're wandering in the wilderness for like 40 years. Okay. It's like a 40 year road trip and it's not a fun road trip. It's not like, oh, let's get some Takis and some, you know, some Pringles and let's go. It's like 40 years in the desert with not some great scenery. So imagine like walking around Vegas in the desert for 40 years and that's what it's like. So, so they, they're, they're, they're wondering, okay, where am I going to get food? How am I going to eat? And Jesus said, or, or God says, I'm going to give you some food. I'm going to give you this manna from heaven that's going to sustain you. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that I'm only going to give you enough for that day. Do not collect more than what I'm going to give you for that day because the point of you depending upon me and understanding that, that, that I provide for you, that I'm faithful to you, is you understanding that you don't just to co- get to collect all this food at once and then take it with you. Because that would imply that, then that, that, that therefore, since you are a great resource collector, that means that you then can hold on to what you have. And not trust in me. But God says, no, take only what you need for that day. And then I will supply for your needs. And that was hard for some of them to understand, to grasp, because they were, you know, they were being nomadic. They didn't have a place to farm. They didn't have a place to go out and hunt. They were in the desert. They had to get certain things. And so one of the things they obviously needed was food. And so God says, I want to provide that for you. I want to give that to you, but I want you to know that it's going to be on my terms. And so he taught them this principle of trusting in God daily to provide for their needs based upon what he gave them through this manna. And so it would imagine like being in the desert and then loaves of bread came from the heavens. Understand what I'm saying? Okay. Just loaves of bread. Okay. I'm just trying to give you a mental picture here. Okay. That's what I imagined in my head. Like, you know, it's like, oh, and then like loaves of bread, you know, and just eat those loaves of bread. So not necessarily exactly with the biblical worldview, but, you know, it's, it helps you picture it nonetheless. So, so it came down from heaven. They would, they, would, they would get enough for that day, and they would eat. And so they were forced to put their trust in God that the next day they were going to have this man to eat. And so what they're doing is, they, first of all, they, they, they made one bad connection. They said that Moses did this, which is wrong. Jesus says, no, Moses didn't do this. My father in heaven did this. And he was trying to tell them, listen, there's, there's two things I want you guys to understand. He's saying, listen, uh, first of all, I'm not Moses. I'm better than Moses. And people are like, whoa, <laughs> 
Don't say that stuff. You know, he, he was trying to say that he was better than Moses because they were trying to put the two together. They were trying to say, hey, look at, look at Jesus and Moses. They're like the same people. And he's like, no, I'm better than Moses. I was the one that basically gave Moses the bread in the desert. And so that was what he's trying to say. He's saying, I'm better than Moses, but what I'm doing is, is more sustaining and is better for you than manna. It's better for you than, than this, this daily, you know, this, this, this daily physical hunger. But he's like, I'm giving you something. I want to give you something more than that. So in verse 33, I want you guys to read this with me. This is, this is the, the crux upon which Jesus' is, is ministry and his life is built upon. He says this, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Read that again. He says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And this is such a huge thing for the Israelites to understand, or the Jewish people to understand, because, you know, this is, Jesus is coming in a time where there's been like almost like this, this 400 year gap where God's activity has been. They feel like God's this, this distant person, but God's not really been distant at all. He's been waiting for the right time to come. But here's the thing that, that, that Jesus is saying about God. He's saying this, God is a God of activity. He's saying God is a God of action, that he's a God of movement, that he's a God of life and vitality, and that he wants to do something in your life. That's why he uses the words that he who comes down from heaven and gives life. That God is not this spectator on the outside of your life kind of watching you go by and hoping that things turn out okay, but that God is somebody that is in your life that wants to actively be a part of your life to give life to you. He's not on the outside, but he is somebody with action, with activity, with purpose and intent to come to, into your life and to do something with your life. In Philippians 2, chapter 5, is a, a verse that we know. It says, it says this, it says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of man, did, or though he was God, did not uh, count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that he said that, that though he was in the form of a servant, that he made himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. That he said that, that Jesus gave up his, his heavenly authority up in heaven. And he said, I, I want to give you my life. I want to offer an exchange for you. That, that though I am God, I want to come into my creation. I want to insert myself into creation. The stuff that, that, that the creation that I made and the problems that they created, and I want to make things better. I want to make things right. This word life in verse uh, 33 um, is a word called zoe. Say zoe. Try it again. Zoe. Zoe. Okay? All right. This word zoe has... has has kind of a, a dual meaning to it, okay? And so I'm going to use another really big spiritual word, and it's going to blow your minds, I promise, okay? And we're going to break that word down, and then we're going to define Zoe again, okay? So we're going to do some, it's going to be fun, I promise. So, so yeah, you excited about this? Okay, ready? This word is called hypostatic union. Say that with me. Hypostatic union. Okay, let's try it again. Hypostatic union, okay? Hypo, like hippo, but hypo, okay? Static, and you roll your feet on the carpet, and you know, and then union, it comes together, okay? All right, hypostatic union is a big, fancy theological word that means this. It is the relationship, all right, 
that Christ has between his human, his humanistic nature and his godness, basically his, his divinity and his humanity. Because we know that, that Jesus was 100% man, but also 100% God. And the word hypostatic union means the relationship between those two things. Okay? Make sense? We're clicking? Okay? Jesus was 100% God. Jesus is God. Okay? Just in case anybody didn't know that, Jesus is God. You're welcome. Okay? And then if you learn nothing today, just learn that. Okay? Jesus is God. Boom. Mind bomb. All right, and then Jesus also was a, was a man. He was physically born into this world, okay? And the hypostatic union is that relationship between God and man in Jesus, okay? So that had to kind of work itself out. And this word zoe, okay, has this hypostatic meaning, which means this. Okay? When Jesus says, I come to give you life, he means that in two ways. This is going to blow your stinking minds, I promise. Okay? He says this in two ways. He says that I want to give you life in your most humanistic way. Just like your heart beats, he says, I want to give you life. Literal, physical, human life. That I want to give you life to the fullest and the abundance to the top, to the fullest, to the supreme amount. I desire to give you life in your humanity. What makes you live, what makes your heart beat. The physical things about you that God says that, that your emotional needs, your, 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 your psychological, your personality, everything. He says, I desire to flesh that out to the fullest. Your passions, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, everything that's human about you. I desire to pour life into it the fullest. Okay, so that's one part. The second part of this Zoe is this God life in you. That he not only says, I want to give you this humanistic life to the fullest, all your human desires and needs. He says, I want to give you the fullness of God life in you. Okay. That's huge. Okay. That's a big deal that God says, I, I, listen, I want to do this part for you. That's great. But more than that, I desire to give you the fullness of God as life in you, as in all that God is, everything that God is, God being creator, God being healer, God being life. He said, I want to take all of that in its fullness, in its entirety, and I want to put that in your human body. Okay, everybody's heads exploded yet? Okay, everyone's heads intact. Okay, so you don't quite understand that yet, okay? So here's what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying, listen, God is saying, I want to give you life. But it's not just the life that we think that we need. And here's what I want you guys to see. And if you were on Instagram today, uh, you already have this. So just like my page. No, I'm just kidding. It says this. It says, God came to meet our greatest need, not what we think our greatest need is. God came to meet our greatest need, not what we think our greatest need is. That's the first slide up there, the point. So, boom. Okay. God came to meet our greatest need, not what we think our greatest need is. Because here's the truth. Our greatest need is not something that's physical. Our greatest need is not something that has tangible, that has handlebars, something that we, can, that we can hold on to. That is not something that we need because we often think that when we walk in this relationship with God, that we think that the first thing that we need is, God, 
it would just be so great if I could just have this. Something I can, like, if I can just have this relationship, if I can just have this, this career path, if I can just, those of you guys going to college, if I can just have this college just, just accept me, if I can just have these physical, tangible things, desires, needs, wants in my life, God, if you could just do that for me, that'd be fantastic. And we kind of separate this other part of this life that God desires to put in us because we are more content with the physical things because that's tangible. That's more real to us. But God's saying, listen, what you think your greatest need is not your greatest need. He's saying your greatest need is this God life in you. He says for you to understand, he says it's not something that's physical. Your greatest need is this God life in you. That is what your greatest need is. To recognize that God is saying, this life, the fullness of God, okay? And just to wrap your mind around that for like one second, to think the creator of this, this, this entire universe, everything that he has made, desires to put the fullness of his life in you. Everyone's head's exploding today, it's crazy. He desires to put that fullness of life in you. That's what he wants, and he, he, that's why he came down. He says, this is why he who comes down from heaven and gives life to you fully, completely, totally, in your human way, but more so, he says, I want you to know that I give this to you in the God-sized way, that I want this fullness of God of life to dwell in you as well. And when the Israelites hear this, they understand that double meaning of this word life. That's why they say to him in verse 34, Sir, give us this bread always. Just give us this bread always. Because they're thinking like, in this idea of manna, it's going to be gone tomorrow if we don't have this constantly. And God says, I, that's, we're going to get to in a second. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a pretty powerful statement right there. Because here they're, they're looking for continual satisfaction. They're afraid that tomorrow it's going to be gone. The manna's going to disappear. It's going to be non-existent. They're going to have to get something else. But he says to them, no, he says, I am the bread of life. Same Zoe here. Okay? He's saying that same source that you get your humanistic life from and the same source that you get your God life from, that comes from me. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, quick question. So what do you guys do when you guys are hungry? How did you know that was in here? Did you just see those before? You can see these from here? These are seriously the most disgusting things on God's earth. Okay, I knew it was going to cause an uproar. So, everyone's like, okay, he doesn't like talkies. We should stop listening to what he says. So, so when we're hungry, okay, what's one of the first things we do? Mom, right? Or if you're, if you're, if you're at my house, Patrick yells, Ben. Um, he doesn't really do that often. But, um, no, when we're hungry... What do we do? We go get something to eat, right? Who wants the Takis? Okay. Who wants this empty ba- jacket? It's not, there's nothing in here, guys. So, I'm sorry. It's a trick. I'm going to drink this later, by the way. Sorry, guys. So, <laughs> sorry. You're such a sweet guy. So, um, so when, we, when, we, when we're hungry, what do we do? We go get something to eat, right? Like, it's, we don't think about it. It's not like, 
We're just sitting at home. And if your parents are like your butlers, and I'm so sorry for your parents, but like if you're just sitting at home and like most of you guys are doing this this summer, you're like, man, I'm super hungry. Like it'd be great if a double-double just appeared right on my stomach and I just ate it, you know, like, you know, double-double animal style. Like, you know, just came and just, I was, but it doesn't happen like that. When we're hungry, what do we, what do we go do? We go and we get something to eat. When we're thirsty, we go and we get something to drink. You know, we have 7-Elevens on every corner, and so there's Slurpees going at the wazoo. Um, we have all kinds of ways to quench and to satisfy the things that make us hungry. And, and, and Christ is here, and he's, he understands this, this, this most basic need. Because here's the thing. No one taught you how to be hungry, right? Like, no one's like, you know, one's like, you know that grumbling in your tummy? Like, that's, that's when you're hungry and you're supposed to eat. Like, no one's like, oh, okay. Like, no one taught you that. Like, that is the most natural human instinct, right? To, when you're hungry, you go eat something. Like, you know, and when you're thirsty, you get something to drink. Like, that's just, that's the cycle of life. It's the way it goes. Like, no one taught you any of those things. It's so, it's instinctive. It's natural. It's basic to you. All those things are so incredibly basic. And Christ is saying, listen, I want to fulfill that for you. And he's not just talking about your physical hunger, your, phys- your, your physical thirst. He's not talking about that. This is what Christ desires to be. This is that, that second slide. It says this, Christ desires to be our most natural and basic need. God desires to be our most natural and our most basic need that Christ is saying that he's like, listen, it, no one taught you how to want these things. No one taught you to be hungry or to be thirsty. And he says, that desire to, to go out and to get those things, that's what I desire to be in your life. Something that's so natural and so basic to you that you just know instinctively, I have to go after him. I have to pursue him. I have to get him. That there's nothing else in this world that can satisfy what is, what is hungering inside of me spiritually other than this person of God. There is nothing else that can do that. He's trying to teach us this principle that, listen, it's not something, this is something that we have to learn, but he's saying, just like it's instinctive for us to be hungry or to, or, to, or to want something, he's saying, I want this to be the most natural and basic desire for you, that you would want me, that you would want me, that you would desire me. And Christ desires to be that for us. So that in everyday life, wherever we are planted, whether that is in sports or in school or on our streets, or in our homes, he's saying, wherever, you at, wherever you're at, he's saying, I want to be there with you. I want you to recognize me in everywhere that you go. I want you to want me, desire me to be in every place that you are. That it's so natural to you just to think that, you know, man, I'm here on this football team, or I'm here on this soccer team, or I'm here in this job, or I'm here in this place to do something with God to do something for him, that I need him in all these areas, that I need him in everything that I do, that everything and every place that I I am, I recognize that God is what I need more than anything else, that it becomes so basic and, 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 and fundamental to everything that we believe. Jesus goes on to say, and he continues down, if we look at verse 40, This is our last point. This is what he says. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And here's what I want you guys to understand. God's will for you is never a secret. Okay? God's will for you 
It's not a secret. It's, it's not something hidden away in some Harry Potter treasure map, you know. Like, he's not, like, sending you on some magical quest to go and find it. Like, I'm going to go find God's will for my life. You know, like, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying, literally, let me show you. He says, this is the will of my Father. Okay? Anybody ever ask the question, like, God, what's your will for my life? I've asked that question. We can ask that question. It's okay. Okay? God, what's your purpose? What's your desire? What's your will for my life? He says it right here. It's not, it's, and, and that's the thing that we, we, we sh- try to shroud everything in this, in this ambiguous haze of like, I just don't know. It's so mysterious. No, God's will is this. He says that, that you would have eternal life. The next question is, okay, Ben, I've heard this before. What is eternal life? Look at John 17. Look at John 17. You can turn that if you wish. Okay, John 17. It says this. And this is eternal life. Okay. Clear definition statement, and this is eternal life. This is what it is. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He's saying, that is the will of God. So that last verse might read something more like this. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone will know God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. He's saying, if you want to understand the will of God, here's what you must understand. That God's will for your life, the the most basic, the most, he says, this is the most generic overall. This is God's will for your life, is that you would know him. And here's what I know about uh, 30% of the room might say right now. Okay, I've heard that like a million times. Okay, I've heard, I've heard you say, all I got to do is know God. I've heard, all I got to do is just know God and everything else will kind of come to pass. But I've tried that a thousand times and it doesn't work. And I've tried it over and over again and it doesn't make any sense to me. Why is this not working? Okay, and I understand that frustration. I understand that sometimes it feels like I'm, I'm hitting myself into like a brick wall when, I, when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm trying to read God's word on some mornings. But here's what I want you guys to understand. God says, listen, he says, my will for your life is that, is that you would know me. And here's how we say that you get to know God. We say that you spend time with him. We say that you spend time with him on a daily basis. And that you spend time in his word. And, and that may sound very similar and basic, but let me take it a step further. Because here's what I'm sure some of you guys are saying too. It's like, Okay, well, I've done that before. I've tried reading the Bible, and it doesn't make any sense, and it's frustrating because I try to look for the warm and fuzzies, and there's no angel singing in my bedroom when I open the Bible in the morning, and I expect Gabriel's, you know, oboe to be playing in my ear, but it's not. And does he have an oboe? I don't even know. But I understand that frustration because here's the truth. How we approach reading God's Word is nearly as important as reading God's Word. Okay? How we approach reading God's word is nearly as important. You know how I say that? Nearly, okay? Because here's the truth. I want you guys to read God's word. We need you, you need to be reading God's word on a daily basis. But here's the truth. If you come to God's word tomorrow morning and you're saying, okay, God, I'm going to do this thing where I'm going to get to know you so that I can, so I, so I can know your will. Okay, I want to I wanna know what your will is. So I'm going to spend time with you tomorrow morning. And so you wake up and you say, all right, God, here we go. Me and you. Boom. John chapter 7. After just Jesus went to Galilee and would not go about in Judea. And then, cool, nothing happening. No tingles, no goosebumps yet. Okay, good deal. So his brothers, and we, and we read, and when we expect something crazy to happen, like lightning's going to strike, and God's going to be like, here I am. You know, and like, and, and 
the truth is, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. It's not going to happen. But when we approach God's word in this way of saying, hey, God, you've you got to speak to me. Like, you, you better. That's, that's not coming to God's word in humility. We're not coming to God's word looking for him and saying, God, you are my most natural and basic need. We're looking for this exchange program between God so that you can feel better about being a Christian. You're looking for this exchange, this emotional exchange that you can say, oh, because I spent time with God today, therefore I'm a good person. Or therefore I'm a Christian, therefore God loves me more. But no, that doesn't work like that. You and I can't try to have this emotional negotiation with God where God says, where you say, all right, God, you speak to me this morning so I can feel better when I walk through the day today. But we come to God and we say, God, listen, I, I gotta, I just, I'm just going to read. I'm, I'm just going to read and I might not feel anything. I might not hear anything, but I'm just going to read because I know that I need this. And I know that I need you. And I know that what is in here is important to me. And I know that as I'm doing this, I'm getting to know you. And the truth is, is that one day might go by, two days might go by. A week might go by, a month might go by, and nothing special or sparkly or magical and fairies and stuff may not ever come, okay? But that's okay. Because God's not saying, hey, listen, if you spend more time with me, the more, you know, the more special things are going to get. But here's the truth that you can know. The more that you are reading this and understanding that the, the way you approach this is just as important as what you're reading, that when you're saying, God, I recognize that when I'm spending time with you, I'm getting something that I need. And I'm not trying to get this exchange from you. I'm not trying to get you to do stuff in my life. All I'm trying to do is recognize that, God, I need this in my life. And when I do that, I promise you, you will start seeing changes in your life. And it may not be these holy, drastic changes, but it may be these small things over the course of time. What matters is that you stay consistent with it and you don't get defeated at the small bumps in the road. And you don't get frustrated yourself when you skip one or two times. But that you stay consistent with it because nothing can teach you about God than this. Okay? Nothing more can teach you about the person of God than this. And God says this, this is my will for your life, that you may know me. This is how we know him. This is how we know him. No amount of sermons can take care of that. No amount of worship songs can take care of that. No amount of small group times or Bible studies, anything like that. I say Bible studies to say like any of those things with like the journals and things like that. Those are great. But I'm just saying nothing comes close to you just sitting down and saying, God, I just want to read. I just want to read because I know I need this. And I know I need you. So would you help me see that? Would you teach me through that? And, and when, we, when we approach God in that way, and we consistently pursue him over the course of time, that's going to change us. And I know there's some of us that might say, well, I don't really feel like pursuing God right now. And that's okay. That's okay. Because some of the most, or, or some of the best prayers I've ever heard are from people that are actually honest about how they feel about God right now. And some of you guys might be honestly saying, man, I don't really feel like doing that. And that's okay, because sometimes I don't feel like doing it. But I understand that. And I understand that there's sometimes where I don't want to get to know God. And we're like afraid that God doesn't know our thoughts, and so we don't want to pray those things because we feel unspiritual saying those things. But it's okay to be unspiritual in a sense and say those things and say, God, I don't understand you right now, nor do I understand how to spend time with you, nor do I even understand how to get to know you. And God, I don't even, I don't even feel like I want to get to know you right now. But God, would you help me? There's a difference between just being stuck where you're at and being okay with it. And there's another part of saying, listen, God, I don't know you and I really don't want to get to know you, but I want it to change in my life. 
And when you see that difference and when you see that change, listen, God's okay. God's cool with that. He wants to answer those prayers because he's, he wants to, you to recognize that it's in him that he can change your heart. That it's in him that he can take what your desires are and make them his desires. God wants to do that in you because listen, if you have enough willpower in yourself to convince yourself that you need God, guess what? It's all on you at that point. And that can easily be sucked up and taken away. But God says, no, when your dependence is upon me and you recognize that I give you that desire to pursue me, then I start pouring my life into you. Then you get this Zoe life, this life of God that comes in you because you recognize your greatest need in your life is not more willpower, is not more self-determination, but it's more of me. Just one quick closing thought as we do this. As we said that, that knowing God is God's will for your life, but that's kind of like a, 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 a both-end thing. It's kind of like an inhale and an exhale. That God's will for your life is for you to know him, but God's will for your life is also to make him known. And that God's will for your life is that you would know him, that how that fleshes out is going to be different for every person in this room. And so some of you guys are going to college next year and you don't understand, you, maybe you know for sure, I, I know what I'm doing with my life. I know for sure where I'm going. I know the track I'm going on. And that's great. But those of you guys that are going to graduate next year and you're like, I'm telling you, the seniors this year will tell you that this year is going to fly by like that and it's going to be nothing for you. And you're, and you're thinking, man, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. But here's the thing that we do. We say, God, what am I supposed to do with my life? What's your will? Here's what we get confused. God's will for your life is that you would know him. How that fleshes out comes after you get to know him. When, after you get to know God, God will show you, this is how it happens. This is how it takes place. This is how it manifests in your life differently. This is, this is where I tell you you're supposed to be a pastor. This is where I tell you you're supposed to be a worship leader. You're supposed to be a doctor. You're supposed to be an engineer. You're supposed to be a nurse. You're supposed to be an architect. You're supposed to be an artist. I tell you those things not before you get to know me, but after you get to know me. Because God says, I'm going to tell you those things. I'm going to tell you how to make me known in your life after you get to know me. Because you can't tell people about me unless you know me. And when we flip those things around and we try to find out where we fit without trying to know God, the clarity of what we're supposed to do in life gets fuzzy. It gets mixed up. And so we try to pick careers that get us the most money. We try to pick things that we do because it's cool. And then we try to say, God, would you bless that? God, would you try to work in that area? Before we say, God, I just want to know you. And you don't have to tell me my future or anything like that. I just want to get to know you. And when we do that, the veil of, of how God wants to use you and how he wants you to make him known in your life will become clearer and clearer and clearer. I guarantee that will happen for you. So I want us to pray real quick. We're going to respond to this time. And I know it's kind of coming from a lot of different directions, and there's a lot of things that maybe might be on your heart. But here's the most simplistic stuff I want you guys to pray. Your prayer tonight It's going to be this. I want us to pray tonight that our most natural and basic need is God. 
that it's, it's nothing tangible or physical. It's nothing that we can really put handlebars to or, or put things around. We're saying, God, really all I want is you. of us that are struggling with this concept of of will and and, and call in life. I want us to pray that that God would make it clear to us tonight, not how we should fit into this world, but first how we can pursue God more, how we can get to know Him more. That we would be more sincere about spending time with God. As we know him, he will show us how we can make him known, how we can make him known to our friends and to where we work and to where we plug in. If tonight you're struggling to even want to get to know God, would you make that prayer authentic and say, God, I, I really don't know if I know you. Would you help change my heart? I don't really know much about you, God. Would you help me to see? Would you be honest and real as you talk to God?